Well, let me pray. Father, we, um, we pray, please, that uh, you might bless our time together uh, as we now dig more deeply into this Word. Please give us hearts and minds that are attentive, um, that want to think your thoughts. And uh, we pray for lives that would please you and lives that reflect uh, your work in our hearts, we ask. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a pattern over the years that I have seen, um, watching um, uh, Christians and church life for many decades now, and every few years what happens is uh, the very best of us um, grow dissatisfied with church as it is, and not just this church, but you know, the ordinary churches around the place. They grow dissatisfied with regular church and the pattern of regular church and the lives of regular Christians, and... Uh, they sense that there must be more. If we're in relationship with the God of the universe, if we're in relationship with the great and powerful God of the universe, there's got to be more, surely. The experience of being in touch with him must have something more exciting about it, more powerful to it. It must, must produce much more exciting things. Um, and the experience of being together as Christians surely must be more exciting and produce more fruit and have more impact and see greater things happen. It, it must be surely when Christians who are in touch with the living God come together, there'd be sparks, there'd be fire, there'd be something more. And so people shift churches to those churches that do promise more. And perhaps the church they shift to, uh, it feels a lot more exciting, more powerful. There's an intensity, there's an energy uh, the singing is amazing and, um, and people in all of that experience feel like they're entering into the very presence of God. In fact, uh, the church promises that as you do sing and praise um, and worship God, you'll be caught up into his presence, you'll be brought into his presence by that praise. And so you feel like you're feeling him and that feels exciting. That starts to feel like it should feel if we're in relationship with the God. And then there becomes, of course, a critique of the older church, the more ordinary church that felt a little lifeless, a little dead, full of just ordinary Christians who come, do their thing and go, and there's no heart, there's no passion, there's no fruit, there's no energy. Um, and I describe this pattern uh, of the last bunch of years uh, because it is often the best of us, it's those amongst us, uh, amongst churches, oh, sorry, not just our church, but amongst more, more ordinary churches, it's the best amongst ordinary churches who really do have a desire to want God and want to move on as Christians and really grow and see something happen in their lives and make a big difference with their lives and lead an exciting, significant Christian life, producing great things. And it's often the best of us who pursue uh, you know, the more, more spectacular and so on. Now, I want to dig into that with you tonight uh, in a message with you that really is a discernment message. It's about growing in our discernment of uh, the things of power. What, what does it mean uh, to be in touch with the powerful God? This is a passage we've just had read from John 15 that in many ways, actually, it doesn't use the word power, but power is there. The power to produce fruit, fruit that lasts fruit that lasts into eternity, fruit that brings glory to God. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. Christian lives that produce a lot of fruit and produce glorious fruit. And this power is a, this passage has a lot, without using the word power, does speak to that. Um, so in a sense, um, 
what I want to say actually is it, it, those, those amongst the ordinary churches, uh, can we call our church an ordinary church? I like to think of it as an ordinary church. But those amongst us who have, a, who have a real burning zeal to want to see God glorified and much happen and much fruit, they're on the right track. They're on the right track. Um, because God himself, the Lord Jesus, wants you to produce fruit. He wants you to produce fruit that's a great fruit and glorious fruit, fruit that will bring glory with the Father. And so these people who are wanting much more, there's a sense in which they're on the right track. Um, And um, they see in their old church, their ordinary church, that it doesn't seem to be producing much, doesn't seem to be great, doesn't seem to be much, doesn't seem to be much that's glorious. Now the challenge for us tonight is to get clarity about all of this. Um, so that you can you can bring discernment, so that Ephesians chapter four, we're no longer tossed back and forward like uh, on the wind of the the waves back here and there, but we understand with great clarity what what. Now I'm going to give it three points uh, that we can dig through together to try and get this clarity and get this discernment. Let me wrestle with John 15 along these three lines. What is the source of power for Christian living? And and effectively, have you got that power? Do you say, what is the source of power and is it a power that you're drawing on? See, that's the big, one of the big questions. Second one is this, what would you expect if you were in touch with that power? What kind of fruit would you expect to experience if you're in touch with the great power, the source, the key to the powerful Christian life? What fruit would you expect to happen? And then lastly, well, how do I tap into that power to get that fruit? Do you see? So what's the key, what's the source of power for the Christian life? Um, what, what, I, what do I expect if I'm in touch with that power? What fruit should I see proving that I'm in touch with it? And how then do I tap into it? Now this matters because the Lord Jesus there in chapter 15, uh, verse 2, He says that every branch that bears no fruit will be cut off. Will be cut off. It matters that you do bear fruit, it matters that you are in touch with the power that means you can produce fruit in your life Uh, because if you don't produce fruit, whatever that fruit is, we need to work out what that is to make sure you're producing it. If you don't produce fruit, Jesus says this is an eternal issue. For all your claims to be in Christ, you'll be cut off. Um, And he repeats this idea actually down there in verse 6, if you do not Uh, Remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. Very deeply serious, the Lord Jesus. You've got to be producing fruit. If you're not producing fruit in your your Christian life, then you'll be cut off from Jesus. The eternity will be gone to you. So so how do I tap? What is the source of power? What is the fruit that I'm meant to produce? And how do I tap in to produce it? You with me? There's where we're there's where we're going. So let's dig into the first point. What is the source of power from John chapter 15? Um, I'm going to give you the answer in a word uh, because actually the source of power is a very simple one. But I want to talk a little bit more about why it's the source of power. So we we are driven very clearly into why what the source of power is. What's the source of power? Well. The answer is very obvious, I'm going to give it to you in a word, you probably know it, I dare say yourself, what is the source of power in the Christian life? Jesus. It's always Jesus, the answer is always Jesus. What is the source of power? Jesus. And I want to suggest you that this passage doesn't just tell us that He is the source of power, but He tells us why it matters that He's the source of power. 
and not any other source. There's nowhere else to go except in Jesus. And it's there in the very first line of John 15, I am the true vine, says Jesus. I am the true vine. Now, how does that tell you about the source of power? Let me take you through it. Jesus here picks up an agricultural image, uh, you know, so the vine, it's the grape vine, it's not just any old lantana bush or something like that, it's a grape vine which produces grapes, which produce wine. So it's a very positive uh, image uh, and for complete 21st century Westerners who have never been on a farm in their life and think that grapes just appear in a fridge in a bag in coals... Let me give you a little bit of hort- hort- agricultural stuff, right? Not that I know much about it. But um, a grapevine, I've seen pictures of them. They, <laughs> they um, deep roots into the ground, a bit of a sturdy trunk, which then branches out into lots of branches. And the branches of a grapevine are not like the branches of a gum tree. They're of no use for anything except producing grapes. If they don't produce grapes, you can't use them for anything else. You can't cut them up and use them for firewood because they've got nothing, right? So really the grape vine, the vine, that, the branches and so on, really only have one use uh, in the ancient world. Perhaps now might be ornamental, but um, the use of producing grapes. And so there's a whole industry around working these vines, um, agriculture and so on, and you might be aware of this, that um, you know, there's a great deal of effort to make the vine produce more and more grapes, and so they cut off the branches that aren't producing any grapes, they trim the ones that are to make them produce more, and, and so on and so forth. Um, now, that's the image Jesus is referring to, uh, but that's not the background. What I meant to say is, Jesus is not just using the image because it's a useful agricultural image, He's using the image because there's a deeper background to it than just nature. And the key to that is the word true. Verse 1, I am the true vine. He's alluding to the fact that there has been another vine which wasn't the true vine, do you see? If someone says, I am the true vine, well, Jesus says it, uh, it means that there's, there's another vine around. You see, but I'm the true one. Now, this is trading on a massive history of thought in the Bible, in the Old Testament, about the vine. This is not the first time the language of vine has been used in the Bible. It's used often in the Old Testament. You get it in Psalm 80, you get it in Isaiah 5, Jeremiah 2, Ezekiel 19. Uh, It's always used of Israel as the vine. So the Jewish people, in the Old Testament, who lived in Israel, in Palestine, what we might call around Jerusalem, that ancient nature, nation of people, the Israelites, were often described in the Old Testament as a vine, as a grape vine. And wherever it's used in the Old Testament, it's used to say that Israel, as a grape vine, failed to be the vine it needed to be. And I want to, I want to take you back and uh, show you in some detail this. Come with me to Isaiah 5, what the reading we had. Uh, Isaiah 5. And if you've got your Bible, I do want you to turn that up. Uh, if you've got some device that can get you in there, do that. Just don't go on anything else. You know that social media has increased depression and anxiety around our world. So don't get anxious or depressed tonight. Don't go on social media. All right. Um, <laughs> Go to Isaiah 5. Let me make you anxious and depressed. (laughs) Come with me to Isaiah 5. Um, A passage in the Bible that's all the way back many centuries before Jesus. And um, 
Verse 1, I'll sing of the one I love, a song about his vineyard. So the, the author here is speaking about the one who has a vineyard. Uh, my loved one had this vineyard on a fertile hillside in a really good place. This vineyard was planted. He dug it, cleared it of stones, planted, did everything to do to make the vines uh, grow and, and flourish. He put a watchtower and so on and so forth. Verse 3, now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. So the, the identity of the one speaking has shifted now. The one, who, the one who is loved, who owns the vineyard now, talking. Um, what more, verse 4, could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? I did everything to make this vineyard healthy and, and flourishing. I, 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 but when I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? When I looked for fruit, I got bad fruit. Now, I'll tell you what, verse 5, what I'm going to do, I'm going to take away its hedge, destroy it, break it down, it'll be trampled, I'll make it a wasteland. Verse 7 makes very clear what is being talked about. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah. They are likened to a vine, to a vineyard. And the problem is, when God went to his vineyard, to Israel to see good fruit, he only found bad fruit and the fruit he's talking about there is the second half of verse 7, when he looked for justice, he saw bloodshed. When he looked for righteousness, he heard cries of distress. The point here is I want to make just at the moment is that the language of vineyard, the vine, is, has been used a great deal in the Old Testament of Israel and its failure to produce fruit. You with me? So you come back to John 15 and Jesus is now uh, on the last night of his life before the crucifixion. So as Maddie, Maddie said, uh, we're now talking, so really helpful. So today, back 2,000 years ago was uh, Jesus Palm Sunday. We're now talking Thursday night, uh, so Thursday this week uh, before his crucifixion on Friday. And um, in that, on that evening, he's in an upper room, an upstairs room with just his disciples and he's giving an extended teaching time which John, who was there, reports for us and records uh, through this section, uh, 13, 14, 15, 16 and so on. And um, uh, Jesus is there teaching and he gives in chapter 15, verse 1, his last great I am statement. So if you know, Jesus has given a number of I am statements. I am the resurrection and the life. I am, I am um, the door. I'm, these kinds of statements, the Lord Jesus. This is his last great one. I am the true vine. Now he's not using a convenient agricultural image. He's calling on them to rethink the whole way they view the history of their nation. The whole way they think about history and the place of Israel, and who Jesus really is. I am the true vine, says Jesus. That is, Israel, that you knew about as the vine, as God's vine, was never the true vine. I am the vine that Israel was meant to be. I am the true vine. Now, this is massive and exciting. Um, what you have here is Jesus saying that, that all that Israel was as the vine of God, God's vine, was anticipating Him, the true vine, 
It's extraordinary. Jesus fulfills all that Israel was meant to be. They, Israel was called the Son of God, God's Son, who God loved. Jesus comes to be the Son of God that was always anticipated by Israel, but it's fulfilled in Jesus. And notice what's being said here again and again about the person of Jesus, or what Jesus is saying about himself. He is the fulfilment of history. Everything was anticipating his arrival. And anticipating his arrival, not just in terms of promises that one day someone would come, but anticipating his arrival in that the whole history of Israel was a shadow, a type, a, a picture, a model of the true Israel, of all that God intended his people to be, uh, um, narrowed down into just one person, true Israel, the true vine, my true son. He is the fulfilment of history, the centre point of history. All that happened in the past was there for the coming of Jesus, which reveals the great work of God in history to set things up, to build the nation of Israel, to give it a temple, to give it a priest, to give it um, sacrifices, to give it the law. All of that God did to prepare the way for the one who fulfills it all, who is all of that in himself. Now, this is just mind-blowing and remarkable things to be said about this man. Um, the Lord Jesus was not an afterthought. He was the very purpose of all that God has done in history. I am the true vine. Jesus is the source of power, the true vine. Remain in me. And effectively what he's saying, just, just to add another piece here, effectively what he's saying to this group of Jews who had been raised as Israelites, who had thought of themselves because the Bible taught them to think of themselves as the vine, the vineyard, um, what Jesus is saying to them is, your whole identity needs to change, Jew, Gentile as well, but your whole identity needs to change, Jew. Because you have grown up thinking that the way you connect to God is by being in Israel. I want you to now know that the only way you can connect to God is by being in me, the true vine. Connection to me is the vine. Remain in me. Come to me as the true vine. Because without me, you are lost. Everything happens by being in me. He is the source of all things. Jesus is the source of life. He was in himself, John 1 tells us, life. And that life was the light of me. All of, all of life, all of human existence, all of what, what is animate has come by Jesus, through Jesus. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the source of not just our life, but our spiritual life, our eternal life. You only find life in Him and you only continue in life while you remain in Him. And He is all of this, the centre of history, the purpose of history, the source of life, the resurrection of life because He's God. He's God taken on flesh and He comes amongst us and says, I'm not just a man, I'm the very source of your existence. I'm the source of Israel's existence. I'm all that Israel was anticipating because I am your creator and sustainer. I am God among you. 
All of history, all of Old Testament happened to prepare the way for the coming of the true vine. And he is the source of all power and spiritual power and life because he mediates the very power of God himself as the Word of God, as God incarnate, as the Son of God. These things are all said of this man and by this man. If you're in that room, just mind-blowing who it is who stands or sits amongst us. All of human history points to this man, uh, the, the divine God, Son, and the Father, the divine Father, the triune God who is one. The Father seeks to glorify the Son. And the Holy Spirit, we saw last week, John 16, the Holy Spirit's role is to bring glory to the Son. He is the source of all power, the Son of God, the Word of God. Now, notice this, in the upper room, Jesus, and I'm just going to be a bit provocative in saying this, so I'm, uh, not that I'm usually provocative, but here we go. In the upper room, Jesus didn't say, the key to your spiritual power, your power in the spiritual realm, is the Spirit. He didn't say that. He said, the key to your power in the spiritual realm is me. And it's as you abide in Jesus that you have the source of life spiritually. Not as you abide in the Holy Spirit. He didn't say that. He said, as you abide in the Son, the true vine. Notice that. But notice further, just to clarify, this isn't very different actually from saying, be filled with the Holy Spirit or have the Spirit dwell in you, uh, which is what Jesus does say in John 14. Uh, verse 16 and 17, because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. To have Christ in you is only possible by the Holy Spirit of God. To have the Holy Spirit of God is to have the Son, it's to have all of God. The Father and Son make their home with us because God is one. The work of the Spirit is to unite us to the Son, Jesus, who is the source of our spiritual life. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth who reveals the truth of the Son, that we might be connected to the true vine, to the Son, the source of all things. You see, the key is not talk of the Spirit, but talk of the Son, which is the work of the Spirit. Are you getting hold of this? I banged away at this for a few weeks. Um, there cannot be two kinds of Christianity. There cannot be a Jesus Christianity and a Spirit Christianity. That is to separate what can't be separated and demonstrate at the very least a person doesn't, if a person's done that and talked about Jesus Christianity and Spirit Church and Spirit Christianity, a person, at the very least they've misunderstood the work of the Spirit and the relationship of the Spirit and the Son and where the source really is in the Son. They've misunderstood. At worst, they've demonstrated that they've not actually in touch with the Spirit of Jesus. It is a terrible tragedy that many spirit, so-called churches who talk a great deal about the Spirit and seek to introduce you to the Spirit are actually dealing with a different Spirit. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. That, that you have not, Corinthians, it's very possible that you've come to a different Jesus and a different Spirit. Because if you're in touch with the Spirit who is the Spirit of Christ, it will draw you to Jesus, the source, the vine, the true vine. And if you're not being drawn to Jesus, if you're being drawn to the Spirit, it's not the Spirit of Christ. 
these things are very serious and deeply important to appreciate. And let me illustrate this with a, um, a very trivial thing. So, so I, don't want, I don't want to overreact on this, so, but it just gives a little touch on what's being said here that might help. Um, it, it's concerning a shift in the sign that we have used for Christianity. So in the earliest uh, decades after Jesus' death and resurrection, the sign that was used to represent Christianity, to say, I'm a Christian, was the symbol of the fish, a little fish sign. And it was used because the Greek word for fish, ichthus, uh, was used to, for the, fir- the first letter of the Greek words, um, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Saviour. And so ichthus, the word ichthus was a little, you know, each letter stood for Jesus Christ, Son of God, Saviour. And so when people painted a fish or presented a fish, it was them saying, I am connected with Jesus Christ, Son of God, Saviour, you see. And what it, what it demonstrated is a very great insight into what Christianity was about, Jesus. A, a little bit later in history, the sign for Christianity became the cross, And again, a great insight by early Christians to appreciate that Jesus is at the centre of Christianity, he's the true vine, he's the source of all things, at the centre of Jesus' work is his laying down of his life for us in the cross, on the cross, his substitution under the judgment of God in our place that we might be forgiven and so the cross became the sign and a very wonderful sign, churches were built in the shape of the cross because they so recognised the profound nature of the cross in Christian thinking and they recognised how central it was to Jesus. A a person dies in their grave, a cross would be hammered over it. Um, The cross was worn, it was, and so on and so forth, drawn on walls. But the last 50, 60 years, the sign of Christianity has become the dove. The dove. Now, why the dove? Well, because many people see in the Spirit descending on Jesus at his baptism, he descends, the Spirit descends like a dove. And so the dove has become a sign for many people of Christianity because it's about the Spirit. But now, it's not evil to have a dove. I don't want us to go out in the car park and see whose car's got a dove on it, right? Whether your Bible's got a dove on it. No, 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 let's not go there. But the point I'm making is, do you see the shift? That the centre of Christianity is Christ and his cross, but we have chosen the dove as the symbol in many contexts. Something's happened. Now, in many times and cases, this is simply a person wanting to say that they're part of a movement that differentiates them from that dead kind of Christianity that's just about respectability and turning up and going home and not actually producing any fruit. They want to say that they're, they're in touch with the, the living God by His Spirit. There's something good and wonderful being said, but it's important to appreciate the shift from the centre of Christianity as Jesus to the Spirit when the Spirit's work is to testify to Jesus. You see the source. It's a simple thing to say, Jesus is the source of all Christian power. But what I want to draw your attention to is why why He has to be the source. Because He's the centre of God's purposes. He's the centre of the work of the Holy Spirit. Of course he's the true vine and of course it's only in him, remaining in him, that you can bear any fruit. 
He's the source. Without him, you can do nothing. There's the first thing. What is the source? Why does it matter? Jesus. Second, what's the fruit? What's the fruit? Now, the point here is Jesus talks a great deal about needing to produce fruit uh, as evidence that you are in the source, the true vine, Jesus. And if you don't produce fruit, he'll cut you off. Well, what's that fruit? Gee, we need to know. As a church, what kind of fruit ought we to be we evidencing to display that we're, we're in touch with the source of power? What is that fruit? Now, the temptation here is to just guess. Because Jesus, in these early verses, he doesn't say what the, the fruit is. He just, he just says, you know, he cuts off, verse 2, any branch that doesn't bear fruit. What's that fruit? He doesn't say. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will have even more fruit. He doesn't tell us what the fruit is. So you kind of go... Well, someone says, what's the fruit? And you, and you, you, you kind of go, oh, uh, let me think about it. And the Bible's sitting here, I've got the answer. Let me just try and think, I've got the answer. Let me just try and think a little bit about what the Bible's saying. Just open me up, I've got the answers. The answers are here. Now, how do we find them? Don't guess. Go to the Bible, see what it says. Let me take you to two places to see what the Bible says. John chapter, uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 5. Come back to Isaiah 5. Now, I'm taking you back to Isaiah 5 because that's the place that talks about the vineyard and fruit. So, this is a great place to begin the seeking to understand what the Bible means by fruit, not what we'd like to guess. Um, What does the Bible say fruit is? Well, verse 7, we read it earlier. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah are the vines he delights in. And look at this. He looked for justice but saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Now, this is in the context of this vineyard producing bad fruit, not good. And when you come to verse 7, the bad fruit is bloodshed, heard cries of distress. The good fruit must be justice and righteousness. What's the fruit? Well, in Isaiah... It's justice and righteousness. That's the fruit. Come to John 15. John 15 now is the closer context, of course, when Jesus talks about the fruit. But because he's using the background of Isaiah 5 and and Psalm 80 and so on, it's not illegitimate to see what they mean by fruit is probably what Jesus has a reference to. But you come to John 15 and he does begin to, to fill out what he means by fruit. At the start, he just talks about fruit, doesn't define it. But as you come down to verse 8, you begin to see what he thinks fruit is. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. Now, right there is the clue. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, Showing yourself to be my disciples. The bearing of fruit will show you to be my disciples. You see the connection? If we want to show the world that we're his disciples, bear fruit. And that fruit will show that we are his disciples. Now, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, and if you're here for the first time tonight, this is a bit hard on you, but if you've been with us over the last few weeks, where else has Jesus talked about something that will show the world that we are his disciples? you remember that in recent weeks? Where has he talked about, here is something that if you do this, it will show the world that you are my disciples? You remember where that is? 
Where, where about, now, where is that? John 13. John 13. Come back to John 13. Now, just know this. This is on the same night. This is probably half an hour earlier. So this is the immediate context. John 13, Jesus has just cleaned their feet. He's in the upper room the night before he's betrayed. It's in the same evening. And he says, verse 32, verse 34, A new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Here it is, verse 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The thing that will show the world that you are my disciples is your love for each other. 20 minutes later, in John 15, he says, it's to my Father's glory, verse 8, that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. What shows the world that you are his disciples? Loving one another. He's just told us that. And so the fruit, bearing fruit, that will show the world that you're his disciples, is the fruit of loving one another. You with me? Now, what's, what confirms that for us is verse 9. Immediately upon having said, bear much fruit, love one another, showing yourself to be my disciples, something he said just a moment earlier, he goes on to talk a lot about love. As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you, now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands. Do you see, he speaks about love. And he comes particularly down to verse 12, and says, my command is this, love each other. By this you will show the world that you're my disciples, if you love each other. It's to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. This will show the world you're my disciples. The fruit, love, love one another. It's my command. This is massively important for us. The fruit that Jesus is particularly concerned about is that we would be like the Lord Jesus, loving he shows his love by dying to save people. He shows his love by obedience to his Father, his Father's commands. We are to show our love for one another by caring about our lives in salvation, by being like Jesus to each other, in substance, not just word, caring for one another. This is the fruit that being in the root of Jesus will produce in your life, if you are in Jesus. Love. Now, there's more than that still, but it's of a piece with it. Verse 16, you didn't choose me, but I chose you to, and appointed you. Now, there's a whole thing to talk about there. It's God's sovereignty and salvation, which we haven't got time about today. You didn't choose me, I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Now, what is this fruit that you're to go and bear? You see, it's to, my, it's to my Father's glory, you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples, that you love one another. But now you're to go and bear fruit. What is it to go and bear fruit? There's something that's happening with the disciples leaving and going. What does that remind you of, of Jesus' teachings? Matthew 28, the Great Commission, to go and make disciples. Go and bear fruit. Bearing fruit in verse 16, the context of verse 16, is the fruit of other people being grafted into the vine, being saved, being made disciples. And this is confirmed when you chase back to chapter 12, we won't look at it in detail tonight now, but verse 12, verse 24, 
you'll see he says the same thing there. Fruit, conversion, growth. How do you summarise all of this? What's the fruit Jesus is talking about that you must bear? And you must bear much of it to the Father's glory or he'll cut you off if you bear no fruit. What's the fruit? Being like Jesus. Being a person of love, like Jesus was love. Having the character of Jesus, who is obedient to his Father, that we might be like Jesus, obedient to the Lord Jesus, and loving one another, because that's his command, that we be people like Jesus of love, that we be people like Jesus of love, that cares for the world that doesn't know him yet, that we love each other and like Jesus, seek to save the lost out of love, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This, in a sense, is just the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, you see. Which is, of course, obedience. See, if the Holy Spirit comes into your life, the Holy Spirit comes into your life to unite you to the vine, Jesus, who is the source of all spiritual power, and in the Holy Spirit uniting you to Jesus, the Holy Spirit now dwells in you, which is Christ in you, and Christ in you by the Spirit seeks to form Christ in you, to be like Jesus, a person of love, a person of love of the Father, of the Son, obedient, which is to say the fruit of the Spirit is far more important than the gifts of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is far more important than the gifts of the Spirit. Whether or not you speak in tongues is of little account compared to whether or not you produce the fruits of the Spirit. And yet this is a very thing that drives passionate Christians, the best of us, who want to be in touch with God. I want the more, I want the thing, I want more, more than just love, more than just Christ-likeness. I want to be able to heal people. I want to be able to speak in tongues. That's where the more is. And the source of that is being in touch with the Spirit. And now suddenly you've drifted very far from what the Bible teaches. You've drifted into a kind of Christianity that separated Jesus from the Spirit. Whereas if you're in touch genuinely with the Spirit and you want more, the more that you'll want is to be more like your Saviour. More like Christ. More loving. More committed to the cause of the gospel in seeing people saved, like Jesus gave his life to see achieved. The source of power is Jesus. The thing that produces fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, is being united to Jesus, the vine. And the fruit that emerges from being in the vine is the fruit of the character of Jesus the heart of Jesus, to be like Jesus, obedient to the Word. Now, the problem with all of us is that that is just so unexciting. It's just so 
It doesn't feel powerful, it doesn't feel like you're spectacularly in touch with God, it doesn't feel victorious, we want to be powerful Christians. But when you have the right eyes to see it all, it's an extraordinary and astonishing miracle in your life that you would become like Jesus and be a person of love, who no longer looks to your own interests, but the interests of others, who no longer just drifts in and out of church, doing what you want to do and living your life the way you want to live and, you know, being a a keyboard warrior for justice causes because it's so convenient, I can just shoot off angry emails. No, no, being a real person of love who actually gets alongside others and invests in the lives of others and walks with people in their stresses and strains and loves the Christian brotherhood and sisterhood and invests in the cause of giving sacrificially to the gospel. These things are where the power of the Spirit is really displayed. And be alert to the fact it will feel and seem ordinary. Now, how do we tap into this power for this fruit? How do you get in and remain in the power of Jesus to produce this fruit? Well, that's the burden of Jesus' teaching, actually. Um, he, uh, and again, uh, how do you get in? How do you tap into this power? How do you remain in this power? Again, the temptation is to guess. Okay, well, how, how do we get in? Well, let me think about it. I heard someone talk about the way you get into Jesus and stay in Jesus is by going through meditation where you empty your mind or you sing in such a way that you get into a trance where you're, you come into the very presence of God by praise. I've heard people talk like this, maybe that's what it is. No, no, read your Bibles, see what Jesus says. Let's have a quick look at what Jesus says about how you get in and how you stay in. Verse 3 is how you get in. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken. Now, there's a lot to be said here, but because of time, let me just make the comment that the way you get in, the way you are clean, is by the word. The word of Jesus, the word he speaks. The word of the gospel. The spirit of truth brings that word. The truth of who God is, who we are, our need of a saviour, the only hope is in the cross... That word brings you to Jesus. How do you stay in? How do you stay in? Well, verse 7 gives us the insight. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. If, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, you see again the emphasis on the word, it's, it's the words remaining in you, it's as you hear the words of Jesus, take heed to the words of Jesus, store them up in your heart, obey the words of Jesus, obey his commands, you see it there in verse 10, if you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love, you'll remain in me. If you obey these words, you're producing the fruit of the Spirit of union with Christ, it's to do with the Word and what you do with the Word. We relate to Jesus by His Word, by heeding it, hearing it, trusting it, obeying it, because it's His Word. Brothers and sisters, there's not, there's not anything more. Many of you wish there were, because it feels so ordinary, and I get it. We only see him by faith. I wish I could see him by sight. I wish there was more. I wish there was more spectacular expressions, but there's not. 
It's the amazing thing of trusting, heeding, obeying Jesus. Um, you know, um, it's important to appreciate that when you come to Jesus, when he comes into your life by the Spirit, he doesn't come into your life as a silent passenger who just goes wherever you go. He comes in as an authoritative voice who comes with his opinions on how you should live and how you ought to be and what your character ought to do. He comes with his opinions. And one who is united into the vine of Jesus is one who will listen more and more to his words as the ones that shape me. Not my opinions, not the world's opinions, but the opinions of my Lord who speaks to me in the pages of Scripture. You know, um, the power, the key to power is Jesus. Nowhere else have you got Jesus. That's all you need to know. The kind of thing the power seeks to produce in your life, the evidence that you are in Jesus, is that you might more and more produce the fruit of Jesus Christ-likeness, love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. So Now, you might be struggling in all those areas, but if you're sitting there tonight going, I want that, help me, Lord Jesus, that's evidence the fruit is emerging. It's starting to grow. You won't see it happen overnight. But if you remain in Jesus and His words remain in you, you will see His fruit produced over years as you keep in step with the Spirit of God that points you to the person of Jesus and causes you to be like Jesus. Are you growing? There's nowhere else to go except Jesus and His Word. Are you giving yourself to those things? Are you seeing fruit begin to emerge? It matters. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you for the wonderful simplicity of Christian life. That we come in by your word, we are united to the vine by your word and we stay in by heeding that word. And we pray please that by the power of the Holy Spirit as we, are, as we remain in Christ that you might produce the fruit of the Spirit, the character of Jesus, that we would have his character, his loves, his hates, his passions, his longings, that they would emerge in us so that we would more and more show the world what Jesus looks like and that you would produce this fruit in us, we ask. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.